I want to read from Mark's gospel from the end of chapter 11 at verse 27 through to the 12th verse of the 12th chapter. We need to maybe put ourselves into context because we're, I know it's November, but we're in Holy Week. Um, Jesus has just had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and according to Mark's gospel, the next day he has cleared the temple. On his way in, he has seen a fig tree and he has cursed it because there wasn't any figs on it, even though it wasn't fig season. It's one of those really awkward stories. And then that was Monday. On Tuesday, he goes back into Jerusalem. And that's where this story comes. Our way back into Jerusalem, the Tuesday of Holy Week. Hear the word of God. Again they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Answer me. They argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say of human origin? For they were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John as truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, 
They wanted to arrest him. But they feared the crowd. So they left him and went away. Praise be to God for his glorious gospel. Amen. The question of authority is right on their tip of their tongues. Because the amazing thing of the incidents that precede this passage is that when Jesus cleared the temple, nobody touched him. You can bet your bottom dollar, and I'm just back from America, so a dollar will do. You can bet your bottom dollar that if you or I or anybody else had done what Jesus did inside the temple that day, their feet wouldn't have touched the ground till they were in jail. But when Jesus did it, such was the intrinsic authority that everybody recognized that they did not arrest him. They were wanting to, but they felt powerless. So up they come a couple of days later and say, where does your authority come from? In asking the question, they've actually acknowledged something, that he has authority. But Jesus sees the trap. If he says from God, they will immediately shout blasphemy. If he says of human origin, then he will lose face with the crowd. But Jesus has learned a lesson long ago. You do not necessarily answer the questions that the world asks. Instead, he replies with a question about John the Baptist, which puts them right on the hook they had hoped to put him on. Because the people loved John the Baptist. But if they say, who did not love him, because he was like, well, he was the equivalent of a vineyard church starting across the road and taking all your people. John the Baptist had more people going out to hear him than were coming to the the temple and to the synagogue. He was a rival If they say of God, then they'll say, well, he'll say, why did you not believe him? Why did you not go? If he says of men, and so they're stumped. In passing, it's worth noting, we don't have to answer the questions the world asks. You may remember, there was a day when every time a moderator was elected, the first question the press asked him was, will you go to services that involve Catholics? And depending on how he answered, it hasn't been a she yet, so it had to be a he, he was either a good moderator or a bad moderator as far as the world was concerned. You may have noticed the question has changed. Now they ask, what do you think of equal marriage? Because the world wants to judge the church and every Christian according to their criteria. Take comfort from what Jesus did. He refused to answer their question, but turned it back on them. And instead, he tells them a parable. This parable is so full of stuff that is just absolutely jumping at us 
they realized within a few seconds that this parable was about them. The children of Israel, God's chosen people, given the vineyard to look after. And how God had, over year after year after year, sent prophets and priests. But they hadn't listened. And now the son was here, he was saying. They don't like it. Because Jesus has hit them at the very center of their difficulty. By clearing the temple, he was challenging their authority, power, and he was taking away their income because they were getting backhanders from everyone who is in that temple selling things. They got a cut on the money changing. We know there are three big things in life, money, sex, and power. He'd done two of them in one go. And they were resolved to take him out. He's basically standing in the middle of the temple and saying, I know what you're up to. I know exactly what you've got for the sun. I can see through all your stratagems. And they're furious. But what for us? I said in the prayer time just beforehand that... uh, There are about six sermons in here, and I'm not going to preach them all. You'll be glad to know. But you could preach a sermon quite easily on the fact that the the owner of the vineyard sent for his share. He wasn't looking for all the produce. He only wanted to share, and you could have a brilliant sermon that you might want to hear on tithing and on giving God his due from all that he gives us. You can have any number of sermons on the fact that it is God who owns it. This world is the vineyard. We are tenants. Therefore, it is our responsibility to look after the world. And I could preach a very good ecological sermon. I'm not going to. But there are two major themes beyond that. We don't own the world. And if we start to treat it as if we do, it will be taken from us. It's fascinating, you see, he's standing in the middle of Herod's temple. This was the the new temple that replaced the one that was built when they came back from exile. It was much bigger, much grander, and was still not complete, would not be complete for several more years. They were immensely proud of their temple. They had built a better temple. It was their temple. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus has a discussion in which he says, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And they say, free? We've never been slaves to anyone. Which is quite a rewriting of history if you remember your Old Testament. He didn't, but he could have muttered, well, what about Egypt? And what about Assyria? And what about Babylonia? And what about the Persians and Alexander the Great and the Seleucids and now the Romans? You're free? 
But the point he's making is a different one. The Israelites felt they owned their land under David and Solomon and the kings that followed. But when they disobeyed God, it was taken from them and they were taken into captivity in Babylon. The Babylonians thought they were the greatest power. But one night Belshazzar had a feast. And the next day Cyrus of Persia walked in whom nobody had ever heard of before. And the Persian Empire came. And when the Persian Empire was swept aside by Alexander the Great, who walked in from nowhere, as it were, conquering all the known world, except it may be worth noting Afghanistan, where he too came to grief, it fell into four parts and the Seleucids took over Judea. And when they fell down, having threatened and cowed the Jews by putting a statue of Antiochus IV right in the middle of the temple, the abomination of desolation of which Daniel speaks. Then the Romans came. It's worth us pausing in this 21st century and reminding ourselves that the world as we know it is not always going to be so. I've just spent a few weeks in America. You get wall-to-wall Trump on your television. I find it fascinating to watch American television because you didn't get anything but American. Very occasionally, you might hear of something that happened outside America, but it's occasionally. But you may have heard a phrase from Donald Trump in the middle of the last election that I heard. No, it wasn't, I'm going to make America great again. That was his slogan. It was the day he said America is the top nation and America will always be the top nation. And I remember a bell going off in my head. That is almost like a challenge to Almighty God. And God rises to such challenges. They're passing legislation at the moment. I don't know whether it's got passed. It hadn't when I left. For tax cuts in America that will add one and a half trillion dollars to the deficit, which is the largest deficit that any country in the whole world has. Someday, someone will say, boo. I, you can't pay it. And the mighty greenback dollar will be worth nothing. Who's buying the debt? China, actually, for the most part. And our economy and their economy and the whole Western economy is founded on debt. Most civilizations are not conquered from without. They collapse from within. And the seeds are there. We are arrogant if we believe that God will allow the tenants to go on using the vineyard for their own purposes and extracting from it all the money. He sees that some part of the world starves 
while another part has more than it can take. Yes, we saw plenty of very large houses in West Palm Beach, including Mar-a-Lago, Trump's own place. There's money there. But this tells us all things are temporary. But why do I want to preach it to you tonight? Because he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders. The whole lot have come together now. They didn't all love each other. They were rival parties. But they had one thing in common. They believed that they were in charge of making sure that the church, I'm using the New Testament term for the Old Testament religion, stood. I was ordained almost 47 years ago in First Bangor. And afterwards, you know, there's always a supper afterwards. We were standing at the supper afterwards, and my father approached a man he had never met in his life before, but he was a large businessman and also an elder in First Bangor. He shall remain anonymous. And my father said to him, uh, I'm Derek's dad, um, and who are you? Do you belong to First Bangor? He looked at him and said, I am First Bangor. The truth was he believed it. It's always good to remind ourselves the church doesn't belong to us. Four years ago, I retired from Fisherwick. When you spend 20 years in a place, you almost begin to be the place. I have had slowly to learn the lesson that Ken is having to learn with you. We don't own the church. We are tenants in a vineyard. And therefore, the challenge that is always in front of us is to say, what does the owner want? Not what do I want? We're always ready to say, well, I want the church to, and I want the church to, and I would like this kind of a man, or I would like that kind of a man, or I would like us to do this The challenge of the parable is this. It doesn't belong to us. It's not what I want. It's what the owner wants. And we need to listen to the messages that the owner sends and give him his place. I know you're doing that. But somehow I felt it was very important just to remind ourselves at this point, before you got anywhere near discussing which people. In the end of the day, it's not who does Orangefield want as their next minister. It's who does God want as your next minister. And how do you discover what he wants? The message of this parable is applicable in all places. It's applicable in our own lives. 
It's applicable in the jobs that we do. It's applicable in the friendships we make. We are not our own. We are bought with a price, Paul says. We are tenants. We come and we go. We are a moment. We sometimes sing, you are forever. It is you, Lord, and you alone. May God grant us the grace to live as tenants and never to put our arm out to steady the ark of the Lord. May God grant us that grace in all our living.